Good morning. Please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We are continuing this series on first things. Some of the first things we find in the Bible, and today we'll look at the first marriage. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me out of honor and respect for God and His Word. You'll probably hear me say this often, but the best part of the sermon is right here. As we read the Word of God, which is living and active. We're going to read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. One of the best sounds we could hear is the rustling of the pages of the Bible as people find... Uh, verses. Genesis 2.18 Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. May he bless it today. Please be seated. So we're looking today at the first marriage in the Bible. And I want to say right from the start that marriage, the topic of marriage is both a wonderful topic, but also a painful one. Especially painful for those who have gone through or are in the midst of trying times. You may want to be married, but there are no candidates on the horizon. You may be separated. And don't know what the future holds. Or you've been divorced. Or abandoned. These things hit close to home. Or you, like many, may be unhappy in your marriage and have resigned yourself to living in a miserable condition. Now, for those of you who aren't married, this study is important. First of all, It may be God's plan for you to be married at some time in the future. But secondly, you are to pray for and encourage those who are married that they would obey God in their marriage. And now for those of you who have been divorced, God does not want to weigh you down with a whole load of guilt. It's interesting that you don't see this uh, idea of guilt Coming out in the scriptures, you see an idea of repentance. But God doesn't want to load you down with guilt 
What he wants to do is show you his love and his grace and his goodness. Now, whatever your condition today in regards to marriage, we need to uphold God's standard as seen in Scripture while pointing to his amazing grace toward all people. And God's word has direction both for those who are married, those who are looking forward to marriage, and God's word also offers hope and healing for those who have been wounded and those who have made mistakes. Now, the current condition of Christian marriage is not comforting. According to Family Life and a study they did several years ago, 58% of Christian couples say their marriage uh, is in trouble. 15% of those couples say that their marriage is uh, in the red light area. It is headed for divorce. It's on a crash course. 43% say they're in the yellow light area. There are signs of trouble. And today we're looking at a familiar passage of Scripture. And I want you to see three characteristics of marriage that God can use to transform us. And that God can use to stem the rising tide of marital breakdowns. And the first thing we see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 is that marriage is God's idea. God came up with the idea. It's not a man-made institution. You see, we live in a day of same-sex marriage, of rampant divorce. But according to the Bible, marriage is not primarily about self-esteem or self-fulfillment, nor is it just one lifestyle choice among many. The Bible is clear in presenting a picture of marriage that is rooted in the glory of God and that is made evident by God in creation itself. Look at verse 18. We read, Then the Lord God said. Now, before we get to this place, God, we have seen, has made the world. He has placed man in the garden, and he has given man uh, over and given him charge over the garden and responsibility to take care of it. But he sees that something is not right. It says, then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. For the first time, we see that God says something is bad. It's bad for the man that I've created to be alone. Now, we know that in the beginning, when God created, he created them male and female in the image of God. But up to this point, here was Adam alone. And so, God uses a highly emphatic phrase, not good, bad. For him to be alone. And God says he's going to make a helper suitable for the man. And suitable means to be comparable, um, to be equal, to be adequate for the man. Now this is going to bring up roles of men and women, gender roles. And I want to make mention of this to tell you that we all know there are are a variety of views when it comes uh, to gender roles. Some of those views are strict, quite strict. Some of them are quite lenient. And some are somewhere in the middle. But like creation, among Bible-believing Christians, there are many views and many opinions. And sincere and intelligent Christians differ on these views and opinions. Even in the same fellowship. There are going to be many areas where we need to agree to disagree 
with our brothers and sisters while re- retaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But as we see this idea of God saying that it isn't good, it's bad for Adam to be alone, and he says, I will make a helper suitable for him, this idea of helping is somewhat different from what we think sometimes. You see, helping is not an inferior term, though often if we're thinking in those ways, we think of it as that. See, God considers positions of service as important, most important, utmost important in his sight. In fact, this word helper, it is used uh, uh, 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of those times it is used of God himself, God as the helper. This idea of making a helper suitable for the man really signifies woman's essential contribution, uh, not inadequacy. And suitable can also mean conspicuous. Conspicuous. It's like this. It will be obvious or conspicuous that who God makes for Adam will fit. They will go together in a pair. They will be able to fill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. They will be able to fulfill God's command to fill the earth and subdue it. God knew Adam's need, and so he decided to meet it. And our all-knowing God knows our need better than we do. We have this need for companionship, for fellowship, for someone to love. Look at verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And you see that man's privilege was to name the birds and the animals. But among them no helper was found suitable to Adam. You'll notice too that Adam did not name any of the animals after himself. They aren't made in the image of God. And it must have begun to be obvious to Adam that he was essentially different from these animals that he was naming. And that they all seemed to come in pairs, yet he was alone by himself. He must have begun to feel the need that God knew he had. You see, God was preparing Adam to receive the gift of the woman. And likewise, God shows us our need. He creates in us a hunger for what pleases him, for what is right. And he helps us realize our needs versus our selfish wants. I know when I was younger, probably from about the time I was in junior high, I I was looking around thinking, who is God going to have me marry? I got into high school, I started looking a little bit more intently. And uh, several times uh, in high school and college, I thought I found the one. You know, the one. But it was not to be. Marriage between a man and a woman is God's idea. We feel the need. And he created that need and he makes us aware of it. Now the second thing we see is marriage is God's gift. Look at verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Right here. We're going to see the first surgery recorded in scripture. In history, really. He takes out one of man's ribs. He puts him asleep. Takes out one of his ribs. Fashions into a woman the rib that he had taken out of Adam. 
Now, why did God use something out of Adam? Why did God use something from his, his own body to create Eve? Maybe it was to forever remind him that as much as they are different, they are still made of the same substance. They are of the same kind. They are more alike than they are different. And there's a tradition that says that God uh, made woman not out of man's foot to be under him or out of his head to be over him, but that she was taken from under his arm that he might protect her and from his heart, next to his heart, that he might love her. But here you see God providing for Adam's need. But he didn't show him right away. He has him asleep. In a sense, Adam is asleep in the will of God until God is pleased to awaken him. And in verse 22, we see that the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. Brought his gift. It's an interesting an interesting point. You see, God's gift prepared by him in his time, given in his time. You see, God provides for our need, but he doesn't show us right away. He doesn't always show us when we want to know. We live in this microwave type of mentality where we want what we want when we want it and when we say we're ready for it. We, we wait. And the waiting, as we know, is the hardest part. For me, I was almost 29 years old when my wife Angela and I were married. Not such a long time, but there were days, there were months, there were years where I was wondering, will I ever find the right woman? Because I kept striking out. Got my heart broken a bunch of times. Now, if you think I have issues now, you should have seen me 15 years ago. My wife and I, praise God, have been married 15 years on June 1st, this past June 1st. But the waiting is the hardest. To wait for God's perfect timing and for his perfect provision, it's not the way we're wired. And sometimes we're not ready for the gift, and so God puts us, in a sense, in the waiting room. Maybe to teach us to appreciate his provision. I know that was the case in my life. But God's timing is good, and God's timing also is purposeful. Marriage is a gift with a purpose. Marriage exists for mutual completion. It wasn't good for the man to be alone. God made a helper suitable, corresponding, conspicuous to Adam. Marriage is also for multiplying a godly legacy. Be fruitful and multiply. And marriage is also for mirroring God's image. You see, we mirror God's image when we love. We mirror God's image when we forgive. We reflect him who created love and who forgave us in Christ. Well, the man and the woman are made for one another. And the institution of marriage is given to humanity as a gift. And the responsibilities and the duties and the joys of marriage are spiritually significant. It's an arena where God's glory is displayed in mankind's thankful reception of what he gives. Of all that marriage means and requires. You know, and we can help one another in this regard. We don't stand alone on this one. We can't stand alone on this one. 
We can help one another glorify God and appreciate His gift in our marriages. If you're married, and if you've been married for any length of time, why not make yourself available to a younger couple to be a mentor to them? They don't need someone who has the perfect marriage, just someone who's willing to be honest and to share both their struggles and their victories. Someone who's been down the road a little longer than they have and can turn around and lend some help and lend some advice and some support and some encouragement. Someone who can share a real-life perspective and be honest and also show that there is hope in Christ for our marriages. We also need to be willing to ask for help, not just give it. And I encourage you, if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, boy, I wish I had someone like that in my life, or I wish we had a couple like that in our lives, pray and ask the Lord to provide just the right couple to come alongside. And we can all help one another, no matter how old we are or how young we are. I want to show you something. It's a chain. It's, a just, it's, just, it's not a chain. It's a, it's a little bit of a link type thing. It's a, something that was broken. And I got this when I was on a missions trip with my wife in Estonia, in the Baltic States. We had some really good friends that were missionaries there for, for a while. Uh, they, like us, have five kids. Uh, we were really close to them. We were in the same Bible study. He was in my men's small group. And while we were on that trip, they, they asked us to go out for the evening. And I was surprised by what they asked us. They said, we're having trouble in our marriage. We need to talk. So we went. And we were in this, the, this huge, huge town square in Tartu, Estonia. People are walking back and forth. And, and we sit down on this little table and we have some soft drinks. And they begin to, to share with us what is going on in their marriage. And all of a sudden, I said to him, hold on, stop. You thought this time was for you. This time is really for me. I need to share something with you. Because at that point, Angela, Angela and I had been married, oh, about almost eight years. And what was going on in our marriage at that point was that I was uh, disparaging her with my comments often. I was not speaking to her in a in a uh, respectful or honoring way. And it was happening again and again. And every time it would happen, I would apologize, I would confess my sins to God, I'd feel really bad, but I would never tell anybody else. Wouldn't tell my small group. Every Tuesday morning, 6.30, three other guys sitting right across the table. Didn't tell them. So I got to the point when we were at this table, you know when things get really small? You're in a big place, but things are just wham. And I just spilled it. And I confessed it uh, to them. Because I had thought, I can handle this myself. I can deal with this just between me and the Lord. Well, that was not the case. And so, we were all crying. And just praying and, and, and really tears of joy too because of the weight that had been lifted, even for me. Funny thing, uh, it wasn't funny, but when I got back, I realized I also need to tell the, other, the guys in my small group, and a few other men that I was accountable to because I didn't want to leave it in Estonia either. I needed people to be I needed people that would ask me. So I asked people that would see me often. Now, why did I, why did I bring this up? Because while we were there, we were, we were uh, refurbishing some 
some uh, swing sets for uh, these. These uh, they were our friends were living in these Russian built flats that were very austere and cold and hard. And they had these playgrounds that were from like the 1930s. Uh, no offense to the 30s, but these were dilapidated playgrounds. And I love antiques. These were were a sight. So we redid the play. We redid the play structures, and this was a bolt that we put through a pole, and it was for a swing set. Two of them. These kids got out there, and if you've been to the Baltic states, you know in the middle of the summer it's light until midnight. Seriously. So they're out there swinging all day long for like three or four days. Well, we go out there one day to inspect the, our handiwork, and we saw that this link was hanging by a thread. If we would have sat on it, it would have broken. It was just really cheap metal. Uh, and uh, we, we, this, we took this and, and replaced it, but I took it and put it in my pocket. And actually, you go into my office, you'll see it. It'll be on my desk. This is always on my desk. But it was a reminder to me that Jesus breaks the chains of sin. But it's also a reminder to me that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in community with other believers. There's one more thing about marriage. It's a mystery. Marriage is God's... That ring is just like my phone, by the way. I know it's not my phone. Uh, <laughs> Marriage is God's idea. He made it up. He thought it up. It's his institution. It's also a gift. But it's also a mystery. Now, how is it a mystery? Is it a mystery just by virtue of the fact that men and women have difficulty understanding one another? It points to something bigger. In fact, Paul spoke of it in Ephesians chapter 5. Please turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is an oft-quoted and often misunderstood passage of Scripture in relation to marriage. But in chapter 5 and verse 32, right after quoting Genesis chapter 2, he says, this mystery is great. And the Greek word there for mystery is musterion. We get our word mystery from it. And it means something that humans are incapable of figuring out. But that which God reveals. Something we can't figure out on our own. But God gives us the opening, the understanding. There are many things difficult for us to understand and comprehend about life and marriage. I was thinking about a Roy Orbison's song, She's a Mystery to Me. How many songs have been written like that? But how can uh, two people who are the same, excuse me, who are not the same, how are two people who are not the same, how can they become one? This is a great mystery. He calls it a great mystery. In Greek, the word for great is mega. It shows the magnitude of the mystery of which we speak. Now go back, if you would, keep a marker there in Ephesians 5, because we're going to go back there in just a moment. But go back to Genesis 2 for a moment. Because in verse 23, we see the man respond to God's gift, to God's provision. 
Now, these are the first recorded words of Adam. There's a lot of firsts in this passage. There's the first marriage. There's the first surgery. There's the first words of Adam in Scripture. And what does he say? He literally writes a poem. He says, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's going to be called woman because she was taken out of the man. See, Adam is beginning to understand that Eve, who she is and how she's related to him. Only God could reveal that to him. And Adam recognizes she is both like him, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and not like him, woman taken out of man. Men and women are different. It's obvious. But they are more alike than anything else in creation is. In verse 24, we read, for this reason. What reason? The reason that man and woman are corresponding to one another. For that reason, that men and men don't go together, women and women don't go together, men and animals don't go together, marriage between a man and a woman is God's idea. Marriage between a man and a woman is God's gift. And marriage between a man and a woman is God's mystery. And what are we to do when we receive this gift? Well, in verse 24, it says, because of this reason, because, because man and woman are conspicuously aligned in this way, the man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave or be joined to his wife. And they are to become one flesh. The two become one. We're to receive our, our, our spouse as a gift from God, as God's provision for our need. And then we are to leave. We are to leave our parents. We are to go to our mate. We are to cut the umbilical cord. I, when I, I have five kids, and I cut the umbilical cord on the last four. They wouldn't even let me in the room on the first one, but the last four, standing right there, I'm cutting the cord. It's messy. But I was cutting that umbilical cord, attaching Michael to his mommy, his lifeblood. Yes. Care. Now, the umbilical cord here of leaving the mom and the dad, mom, uh, parents, it's severing a cord of dependency and allegiance to our parents and becoming interdependent with our spouse. And we should continue to honor our parents. The forgotten commandment is the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. We'll talk about that some other time. But our priority and our loyalty now is going towards our spouse. That's the way it ought to be. We are also to cleave, stick to, be joined to, stick like glue. Marriage is holy. Marriage is blessed. Marriage is set apart. Marriage is sanctified by God. It's a covenant. It's not a contract. It is a covenant between God and man and woman. And it involves a promise to stay married throughout our lives till death do us part. It's interesting that we don't appreciate God's gift often unless we've lost it. 
It involves the promise to stay married throughout our lives and to love and to care for each other and to maintain sexual fidelity. And most marital problems stem from a failure to either receive our mate, leave our parents, or cleave to our spouse. You can categorize them under any one of those three things, and you'll find that most problems in marriage stem right there. Man and woman are become one flesh in marriage. And the one flesh relationship parallels the one spirit relationship that we have, that we are to have with Jesus, with Jesus Christ. In Scripture, the synonym for marriage is oneness. And in this synthesis, neither partner becomes weaker. Neither partner loses anything of value. But the joining is not easy. There are many explosions along the way. Now, Ephesians 5 sheds some light upon our oneness and our responsibilities. Please go back there to Ephesians 5. And I just want to point quickly to three verses. First, verse 21. Ephesians 5, 21 where, verse 20, we're always to be giving thanks to, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, in verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So this idea of mutual submission and mutual respect. And then look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. See, the idea of biblical headship, if you hold to an idea of biblical headship for the man, that means that you are living out a model, modeling humility and servanthood in everyday life toward your spouse. You are laying down your life for your spouse. Loving your spouse just as Christ loved the church. It's not demanding. It's not intimidating. It's not overbearing. It looks like Jesus. Now look at verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. Isn't that interesting? Love and respect. Why is it that God says to the husbands, husbands, love your wives. Why is it that God says to the wives, wives, respect your husbands? Aren't we both supposed to do both? Yes. But I think it, it's, it's based upon where we usually fall short. You see, men don't necessarily and don't usually have problems respecting their wives. It's, it's the loving that's so difficult for us. To choose to love. Michael and I, we went on the fishing trip. We got home late last night. We did catch our fish, um, but they, you know, they're still fishing. And uh, we were driving in the car together, and we have, Michael and I are a lot alike, okay? The apple does not fall far from the tree. And we do something in our family that really bugs the ladies. And no, it's not what you're thinking. Uh, we do that too, but what we do is we, we, we like to clap. What's wrong with clapping? We were clapping this morning, no problem. No, we like to, when a, when a, good, when a song comes on that we like, listen to a CD or something, the song comes on, we clap. We clap loudly with emphasis. 
And the reason we do so, and we realize the reason we do so is because we like to bug people. We like to instigate. We want the response. And we, here's what happened to us. We're driving up to Bishop on Friday, and we come to this song, and we're like, we're both doing our thing. And we turned to each other, and we, and we just started cracking up. We were, we were laughing so hard. We looked at each other, and we both said at the same time, it's not as fun when there's no one to bug. <laughs> But see, husbands are supposed to love their wives, and we do like to bug them. Now, wives, on the other hand, no problem with the love. They're loving you. But guys, gentlemen, all I can say is the way we act most of the time, the respect level is tough. It's tough to respect us the way we act often. I do think that God pointed at where we usually fall short. And I realize sin is involved as well. Guys, I want to say something just to you. Ladies, feel free to listen in. It is our responsibility to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And willingly give up our rights and our lives for their good. It is our responsibility to take initiative for discipleship in our homes. Spiritual leadership must be intentional on our part. It is our responsibility as spiritual leaders in our homes to encourage our wives to use their God given spiritual gifts wherever God leads them to use those spiritual gifts. And I want to say something also about divorce. There are many reasons. There are many causes. And I've done a lot of weddings. And I always say at the end of the wedding, at the ceremony, excuse me, but the worship service, I say, and I think a, a, a wedding ought to be a worship service, I say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, when I was a kid, I'd be going to weddings. I'm an Italian, well, half Italian, and we'd go to all these Italian weddings. And I was always looking forward to the reception. But I used to always latch on to that last thing the pastor said. Those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Or in the old uh, way, let no man set asunder. I didn't know what that meant. I can, I can handle separate, though. And I, what I always used to think is, don't let anyone come in from the outside of the marriage and, and mess it up. That was the picture that always came into my head. Let no man separate. Don't, go into, don't put a wedge between you and, and someone else, between a, a couple. The thing I've been realizing more and more, though, is that it's first and foremost, let no one inside the marriage separate. Those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. That's, that's how God intends. Till death do us part. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract, all that. And the marriage bond isn't to be broken, but we live in uh, a time of rampant uh, divorce. Divorce. 
And many among us have been divorced. I know that. So what do you do? If you've been divorced, there is hope and grace for both victims and perpetrators. Aren't you glad? For every situation in life, for any sin we fall into, there is hope and grace for victims as well as perpetrators. But for those contemplating it, there is a sober warning from God. I want you just to write down Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. We don't have time to look at that. I want to encourage you to look at that later. Malachi 2, 13 through 17. I just want to say one thing that says in there. It says, don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. And treacherous, deal treacherously means to betray. That a spouse is not to betray their partner. And men and women alike are susceptible to doing that. In 21 years of ministry, I have seen and heard a lot. I don't think anything's going to surprise me anymore. Sin is sin. Sinner's sin. And let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, with regard to the mystery of marriage, sometimes we respond appropriately. Sometimes we respond inappropriately. Now, how long did Adam's understanding of the mystery last? It lasted until chapter (laughs) 3. One after they had both sinned and God calls Adam to account for himself, he points the finger at his wife. The woman you gave me. In chapter 2, beautiful poetry, romantic poetry. Chapter 3, blame. Sold out the bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. But his response shows the effect of the fall. And our response shows our inability and God's, Jesus Christ's sufficiency. You see, the enemy of oneness is pride. Pride divides oneness. Uh, But we're not compatible. But we have irreconcilable differences. That is subjective. It's based upon human opinion. And many couples are incompatible. But we make a choice. It's a decision to love. All I can say is just be glad you didn't marry yourself. You want to be compatible? You drive yourself crazy. But it's part of the bond and it's part of the irritation. Like the little grain of sand inside the... Yes. And God brings something beauty out. The, the grace of God, the dynamics of grace bond us. Now, in the midst of your most frustrating times, can you see your spouse as a gift from God? Can you see your spouse as a child of grace? Susan Hunt said this, If we begin to understand that despite our wretched condition, we have been embraced by grace, we will begin to embrace our spouse with grace. Humility will replace pride, and we will begin to serve rather than expecting to be served. Oneness will flourish. Our marriages will begin to reflect the magnificence of grace rather than the mediocrity, mediocrity of selfishness. And part of the mystery of marriage is that it points to something bigger. You see, Paul said 
This mystery is great, pointing to the mystery of marriage. And then he said, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. You see, Paul was using marriage as a picture of what ought to be between Christ and the church. Before the fall, verse 25, Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed. And this has a sense of being totally open and exposed as a person before God and mankind. With nothing to hide, no sin to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. But we're not like that. We know sin and shame. So how can two fallen people ever achieve the oneness that God intends? We are not capable of it in our own strength. We cannot, in and of ourselves, illustrate the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. We cannot overcome the pride of life. Dr. Edmund Clowney said this, Our only claim to the Father's mercy is the sacrifice of the Savior. Jesus became last, that the last of lost sinners might be first in glory with him. Pride is not biodegradable. It will not self-destruct. Only the cross is the death of our pride. It must be broken there to dissolve in tears of penitence. Only then can we take the towel and gird ourselves with humility and begin to serve one another in the love of Christ. You see, there is a helper suitable for us. His body was broken for us. And as the first bride was made alive by the rib from Adam's side, so we, the body of Christ, come into being by the wound made in Jesus' side. And by his wounds we are healed. Pride divides, but the cross unites. And while we are sinful, a hope remains. Jesus. Jesus is our hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you that you are our life and our hope and our peace. And we offer to you, Lord, all that we are. In Jesus' name. Amen.